Thank you for being here tonight and for your interest in serving God and the Word of God. It's good that we sang that song together before our study this evening because it very aptly leads our minds into what I want to talk about tonight, and that is the fact that Christ did come to rescue us. I want to study with you a little while from the Scriptures, Christ's rescue mission. We'll have the verses that we'll be using over here on the right for you to look at, and the text will come up like we usually do, but we've got a verse list there that maybe that'll help some of you who like to follow along in your Bibles. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The whole idea of the book of Ecclesiastes in the hopelessness of life under the sun, if under the sun is all we've got, suggests that we're lost. We're lost in a hopeless, meaningless life that's going to end in death, and then what do you have? But Christ come to seek and save those that were lost. Christ came and his mission was to come and find somebody like Solomon who'd lost his way, who'd been living life without purpose, and give him a sense of purpose, a sense of hope, and a sense of meaning. Not to just specifically in his body go and seek out every person, but by virtue of the mission that he accomplished in his gospel work. And that gospel message that echoes the plan that he did come, and he come with that purpose to seek and save the lost, and lays out the details. That gospel message which we preach that's contained in the Word of God, as that echoes out throughout humanity, and we as children of God carry out the mission to which he's assigned us to carry that message to the lost, through that mission, Christ's rescue mission is accomplished. In Luke 5 and 32, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We learned in last night's study, there's none good but God. There's none righteous, no, not one, the scriptures elsewhere tell us. Christ is the only one. And so his mission wasn't come to save people that weren't lost. <laughs> if, we, if we weren't lost, we wouldn't need a savior. But the sum total of a message in Ecclesiastes drives home the Without Christ, we are lost. And He's come to find these that are lost and offer rescue. He come to bring sinners to repentance. Even people who make terrible mistakes. People who made terrible mistakes like the ones that Solomon made. And he made a lot of them. We talked about those in our study on his life and the different things that we observed about him in the book of Ecclesiastes. We talked about the fact that he appears to be admitting in Ecclesiastes 7, 26 through 28, that he was a sinner who had selected these bad wives that led his heart away from God. That appears to be what he's saying there. A confession of his own guilt and his own need for God's help. So we have before us and before our minds this rescue mission that Christ has performed and viewed against the backdrop of Ecclesiastes, it's particularly beautiful in its scope. So it's not just about having a, a suitable philosophy to guide our lives till we die and then nothing else. <clears throat> but the story of Ecclesiastes and the message of Ecclesiastes that we should fear God and keep His commandments takes on new meaning when we realize <clears throat> that we're carrying out that effort under the light of the gospel and under the light of Christ coming to rescue us. Because he came to rescue us, it matters. 
that we fear God and keep his commandments. Like we studied last night, he is the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey him. Our obedience to him means something because he brings this salvation, because he brings this rescue mission. To talk about Christ's rescue mission, we want to look tonight at our condition as lost individuals. And we want to look at the specifics of his rescue as it relates to our lost condition. And then we want to look at our response to his rescue. So I hope you'll think about these things as we consider. Number one, our condition being lost in sin. The book of Genesis chapter 3 will help us get this in our scope. Beginning at verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, if God said you should not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. So what we learn here in this story is that Satan came and tempted Eve, and subsequently convinced Eve and also Adam to partake of this forbidden fruit. And God had warned them, if you eat this fruit, you'll die. It's going to be problems. We look at it now and we see it would cause them and the whole of humanity to be lost. So they did. They took the fruit. She believed Satan's lie. And because she allowed herself to be deceived, that brought the terrible curse kind. That curse being our condition of being lost. One thing we can observe from man's condition because of that fall in the garden is the fact that we're separated from God. That separation happened there in the Garden of Eden. If you look towards the end of the chapter, you'll find in verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. What happened after Adam and Eve sinned and God talked to them about their sin? The Bible says that he drove them out. He drove out the man. Think of the idea of driving someone out. Obviously, we're not talking about a vehicle here, but we're talking about driving in the sense of pushing animals outward. You know, different animals are different. Some animals, you don't drive them. You have to get out in front and lead them. And there's other animals that you can drive them. You get the right kind of sticks and you're willing to use them the way they can be used. You can drive animals and force them to go certain directions. When I see this idea of God driving out the man, I'm picturing Adam and Eve being forced out of that garden, and that's not what they want. They don't want to leave their garden paradise, but they have no choice because God is driving them out from his presence. And that shouldn't surprise us to learn that because that's exactly what the Bible teaches that sin does. is It comes between us and God, and it drives us away from God's presence. In Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 59, verse 2, he said, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. God being holy, it's within his nature to cast sin out of his presence because he's holy, you see. And this passage teaches us that sin separates us from God. And when we look back at the garden, we see that happening with Adam and Eve. 
Because of their sin, God drove them out from His presence, and then they became separated from God. And the garden paradise that He had so generously supplied for them to live in. Well, that's not the end of their problems. They weren't only lost in the sense of being separated from God, but they were lost in that they were bound to sin. As one man sinned, that brought sin into the world, didn't it? In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, we read about the story of Cain and Abel here, and it talks to Cain about his sin. This is God speaking to him. He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What does God tell Cain about the nature of his sin? What he tells Cain about his sin is true of all sin. Sin seeks to rule over us. It seeks to control us. The Bible teaches us that sin is addictive by nature. It's deceitful by nature. The scriptures warn us to take heed lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful that in the repetition of its practice, it can harden us and we become calloused. And the Bible teaches us about hardened hearts. That's the nature of sin. It's entrapping. It's enslaving. It's enslaving. It shackles us. And as God explains this in concept to Cain, he's explaining, look, sin is at your door. And it's trying to control you. You're obligated to control yourself. To have control of your faculties. And to not yield to sin. Cain failed. So do the rest of us. Because we're a guilty race. In John 8, Jesus talked about this concept of bondage to sin. When he answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. People don't think of it that way. People think of somebody going and committing sin as, Well, I'm having fun and I'm doing what I want to do and it's my life and I can live it any way I want to live. Solomon lived that way. He said, It's my life. I'm going to go out and do what makes me happy, what fulfills me. I'm going to try all these construction projects. I'm going to try all this uh, joyful celebration, this mirth, these different kinds of entertainment. I'm going to enjoy this wealth and this power. I'm going to search more wisdom. I'm going to try all these things to please myself. Did that entrap him? Did that enslave him? Well, it absolutely did. He hated life. His existence became miserable. Now, some might say, well, but I don't feel that miserable. You don't have to feel that miserable to be a a bondservant to sin, to be enslaved to it. This passage teaches, Jesus clearly declares, that when somebody lives that life of sin, they are a servant of sin. Sin's got a household set up, and you're living in that house, dressed like a maid, dressed like a butler, running around doing what your sinful appetite tells you to do. Paint for yourself and your mind that lowly picture, that humbling
The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 and verse 27 that it is appointed the men once to die, but after this, the judgment. We're shackled to it and we can't break the chains. We can't get loose. We can't unshackle ourselves. But what do we do? We're separated from God. We're bound to an enslaving habit of sin. We're bound to face death. What can we do? Wealth wouldn't rescue Solomon from this. His own wisdom wouldn't rescue him from this. The entertainment might make him momentarily forget it, but it wouldn't rescue him. The mirth, the power, all those women, none of it would change the fact that sin separates from God, he's bound to the habit of sin, and he's going to die. And in that context of man's lost condition, Christ comes and provides rescue. Consider Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. This passage joins many prophecies in foretelling of Christ's rescue mission to rescue us from this condition that we've described commencing in the Garden of Eden. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now consider a moment exactly what he is pro- promising here. Think about the nature of this prophecy. If you've studied much about prophecy, you might recognize this as a prophecy that's cited in the New Testament. And Jesus having fulfilled this. And that's true. If you're remembering it that way, you're remembering it correctly. So what does He say happens here? Well, He says Christ has come to bind up the brokenhearted. What else do you see in this passage? Well, I see that He's come to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives. What else is He going to do? He's going to open the prison them that are bound. As we think about these aspects of Christ's rescue, we can understand them easily in a way that corresponds with our lost condition. The rescue that Jesus supplies is perfect to our need. He looks at a wasted life like what Solomon's had become, and He provides just the right medicine right where the pain is at to give us exactly what we need. To turn this life back into something that can fulfill this insatiable flesh? No. To rescue us from this sin-stained world. He come to bind up the brokenhearted. That is, heal hearts that are broken by separation from God and how sin has separated us. Does that make you feel brokenhearted to think about that? To think about being separated from God by sin? There's an archaeological artifact that's been uh, discovered a few years ago that <clears throat> I don't I don't think it's really talked about a lot in the, in the secular world unless you're digging in uh, no pun intended but digging specifically into the field of archaeology and considering it. It's called the Temptation Seal, and its name is associated with the name of the place that it was found. And I, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right, but it's something to the effect of Tepigara. And this temptation seal is believed to date back to about 3,000-something B.C., very, very old. 
And this thing depicts a tree, a serpent, and a man and a woman being driven out away from the tree. Hence its name, Temptation Seal. It's being, it's being thought of as something that would depict Adam and Eve being driven from the garden. And the interesting thing about this deal is it, it, um, it shows Adam and Eve sort of bent over like they're broken or beleaguered or broken hearted. I've looked, there's, there's a couple of different artifacts that are along these similar lines and the one particular that I'm calling to mind d- depicts them in that stature and that body posture that shows someone broken hearted. And when I think about this idea of Christ binding up the broken hearted, that is Him healing hearts that are broken because of their separation from God, I think of the mental image of that seal and what an awful scene it must have been. When Adam and Eve were driven out, and all the while in the mind of God was the plan to rescue them, rescue their, pro- their, their offspring, to rescue all of mankind, or at least offer that rescue. We're told that He would proclaim liberty to the captives. That is, He would liberate those that are bound by sin. You think about us being shackled to sin and shackled to its attending guilt and the separation from God that it brings... The idea of someone else coming along when they've got the key that we don't have and they can unlock those chains, that's wonderful news. He talks about opening the prison, those that are bound. Think of yourself being bound in a prison from death and think about Christ coming and opening the gateway of death and releasing you from that prison of death. It is our appointment to die, but He promises to raise us from that grave someday if we serve Him faithfully. He'll raise us glorified and immortal. What a great blessing and what a pure and clear rescue that corresponds to our every need. That's how Jesus explained it through the prophet Isaiah here in that it's his heaven's authority that inspired that the Spirit inspired Isaiah to write these things. And Jesus came himself in Luke 4 and explained himself as a fulfillment of that. In Luke chapter 4, we find Christ in the synagogue reading from the Scriptures. And He's got the Isaiah scroll out, and He's reading from Isaiah 61. He opened the book. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. He closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and sat down... And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Think of the drama of this scene toward the beginning, apparently, of Christ's ministry. It was appropriate in the synagogue service for any of the Jewish men to get up and read from the scripture that they were so inclined. A lot of times you'll read about there being an invitation given. You might remember in the, I think it's in the book of Acts, that one of the synagogue attendants says, if anybody's got anything to say, say on. That was sort of an ordinary thing. So Christ takes this opportunity, and he gets up and he reads Isaiah 61, as it's marked in our Bible, verses 1 and 2. And he closes up the book, and he goes and he sits down, and everybody's staring at him. Like, what? He just got read those two verses and sat down. What? He just looks around. Everybody's talking at him. Help has arrived. 
this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That gives me chills to think about that. The lost race, struggling in vain to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life. Struggling in vain to remedy their own sin, to find the fountain of youth, to escape the trap of death, to reunite with God. How many animals have been slain? Not just by the people of Israel, but by the pagans and untold people in the patriarchal age who were truly trying to follow God. How many animals have been slain? Blood has been spilled in an effort to try to find reconciliation with God. Yet they had to go back and sacrifice another animal. They had to go back and sacrifice again. They had to go back and sacrifice again. And the Bible tells us there's made in that repetition of sacrifice a reminder every year they were reminded of their sin. It wasn't working. It was doing exactly what God wanted it to do, but it wasn't taking away their sin. Only His Son could do that. His son walks into a synagogue and reads a prophecy about this saving work and says, I'm here. And I'm going to accomplish this task. I think that's a beautiful picture we see unfolding here in Luke chapter 4. So think about the particulars of his rescue. Healing the brokenhearted. Those hearts that are broken because they realize they've been separated from God by their sin. Excuse me, Psalms chapter 40 verse 12. Innumerable evils have accomplished me about. My iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I'm not able to look up. There are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart faileth me. Here the psalmist is keenly aware of his guiltiness before God. He's keenly aware of it and it's breaking his heart. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He can't bring himself to look up. Have you ever felt so ashamed you didn't even want to lift your eyes up? He couldn't even stand to look up. It appears that's where the psalmist was at this point in his frame of mind. He was so ashamed of his guilt, he didn't even want to look up. He was so aware of his sin and what it had done with his relationship with his God. But his heart was failing and his heart was broken. In Psalms 38, verse 4, there the psalmist writes, My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. I cannot carry this alone. And that's why it's so sweet to imagine Jesus saying, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Someone has come to heal this broken heart. In Psalms chapter 40, somebody has come to salve that gaping wound in Psalm chapter 38. Somebody has come to rescue man from his fallen state. His rescue corresponds perfectly with our need. He comes to liberate the captives. Those that are bound to sin and its wage, its habit. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 and 26. Here speaking of what the servant of the Lord must be, he said, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God for adventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. I'll tell you what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan captured mankind. What happened in the ministry of Christ and its completion at Calvary and the resurrection? He become 
He offered the possibility that you and I could be released from Satan's trap. He offered the possibility that those who have been taken and captured by Satan, held at His will, could be released at the will of God. That's rescue. That's me. How many movies have been made? How many books have been written that depict somebody thrown into prison justly or unjustly and somebody else coming along and breaking them out and carrying them to safety? I don't know how that storyline's been worn out smooth. Well, we kind of like a story like that. If somebody's in prison, they're victimized in that setting, and somebody else cares enough and risks everything to come and break them out. We love a story like that. We ought to. If you're a child of God tonight, your life is a story like that. Your rescuer's name is Jesus. The book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. God, be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you will obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Remember when we read in John 8, and Jesus said the one that commits sin is a servant of sin. Remember that? Remember we mentally pictured the, the guy dressed like a butler, the, the lady dressed like the maid of the housekeeper, living in sin's house, running around doing the bidding of your sinful appetite, lost and directionless, living that hopeless existence, that's doomed to face the judgment of God. But Christ in His rescue comes and He takes that person who's a servant of sin and breaks them out of that prison and unshackles them and lets them be a servant of righteousness instead. And that's a servitude that offers hope, that offers a meaningful life, and most importantly, that offers eternal life. That's the rescue that Jesus applies perfectly corresponding to our need in our lost condition. Jesus would come and open the prison of death and said, you look at Christ's saving mission, that's precisely what he did. It's exquisitely explained in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and to live in him who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Listen now, clearly he describes Christ's rescue mission in a way that corresponds to our need. Here we are held under the power of death. But Christ came living in the flesh so he could destroy Satan who had the power of death and take that power away from him and use that Though all our lives we're subject in bondage, living in fear of death, now we have hope. Look, my body's going to die. I can't stop that. But someday when Jesus ends this all, He can fix it. He can bring that lifeless body back to life because He came in the flesh and destroyed Satan who did have the power of death but no longer has it. Now that power rests in the hands of God's Son. He holds the keys to death, the Bible tells us. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 through 57, Paul says it like this, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In a context that expects it specifically explains 
the nature of the resurrection of the dead, that it's the body that's raised from the grave, he punctuates the joy of that chapter by saying, thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. When you go to the cemetery and you read the name chiseled in stone that you wish wasn't there, that's hard to feel like that's victory. But in, by faith, we understand that that grave won't remain closed forever. By faith, we understand that the lifeless body of that saint will not be lifeless forever. By faith, we understand that Christ now has the power of death, and so death will not retain its sting and its, its victory. Grave will not forever hold the remains of that faithful soul who had served God. And someday when the time is fitting the will of God, He'll send His Son with an innumerable company of angels to open up all those graves. He'll express His power over death. What a sweet and blissful rescue that corresponds to our every need perfectly. So we see our lost condition and we see the rescue that Christ supplies in His mission. Now let's look at our response. How do we respond to this rescue? Consider healing the hearts that are broken by separation of God, liberating those that are bound by sin, releasing from the prison of death. Consider our response to each of these. Healing the heart that's broken by separation of God, our response to that is logically to be reconciled to God. That means to be reunited. We've been separated by our sin. Christ rescues in that He offers to cure that, so our response is to get over that separation, be reconciled. Look a little closer. Liberating the captives. We're bound to that sin. He says you can be a servant of righteousness. Our response to that logically is to live that new life that He spiritually enables us to live, that He makes possible through His sacrifice and through His teaching. The idea of being released from the prison of death, our response to that logically follows that we would seek that as our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal would not be what Solomon's had become in the deteriorated state of his life. For his ultimate goal was finding another buzz to please Solomon and try to satiate his flesh. Instead, we embrace a higher goal, seeking a heavenly goal, you see in view of the possibility of that resurrection of the body from the grave. Consider our response point by point as it corresponds with Christ's rescue mission, which so perfectly corresponds with our fallen condition from the Garden of Eden. Be reconciled to God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22, having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now in the reconciled in the body of this flesh through death, present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It's really not pleasant to think of it in these terms, but it's true that when we live in sin, we're declaring war on God. We're carrying out a war against God. And Christ comes and calls that the peace of the blood of the cross. It makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God, be reunited with Him. We were sometimes alienated and God's enemies in that warring state of living in sin. 
But now, you see, He's reconciled us. Our response to that aspect of His rescue mission is to accept that proposal of reconciliation, accept the peace treaty under the terms that God's Son gives us. How can we be reconciled to God? We must believe. We studied that last night as we looked at that rich young ruler and recognized his reluctance to fully embrace who Christ really was. Jesus said in John 8 and 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. We can't have this rescue if we don't believe. We must also repent of our sins. In Mark 2 verse 16, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And Jesus heard it. He said unto them, They that are whole and have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We already read a statement like that explaining the rescue mission of Christ. He come to rescue sinners. And what does that rescue involve? Call to repentance. Insisting that we repent. So that's another step we must take if we're to accept this rescue that Christ offers. What else must we do? Jesus teaches it's important that we not only believe who He is, but we confess who He is. Luke 12, verse 8. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of God also confess before the angels of God. When this life is over. The Lord calls us out of this world. I want to be among those that before the angels of heaven, he looks at and says, this one is mine. I want to be one of those. And I want you to be one of those. To enjoy that privilege, to accept that rescue from our fallen state, we've got to be willing to make this confession. We must be baptized into Christ. In Mark 16, verse 16, Jesus explained the gospel that he wanted his followers to preach to all the world. He said, instructing them to preach the gospel in all the world, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Who is it that will receive the blessing of this rescue from Christ? Those who believe and are baptized. Those are the ones that will be saved. Those are the ones that will be rescued. What if somebody doesn't believe? If they don't believe the gospel, they're not going to obey the gospel. That's what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10. When he said they have not all obeyed the gospel, the writer followed up with a quote from Isaiah, Lord, who's believed our report? They didn't obey because they didn't believe. So if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, they're not going to follow through and repent of their sins or confess their faith in Him or be buried with Him in baptism. So you see, that brings it to this logical conclusion. If we believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, then we accept the terms of the peace treaty that He sets before us. We accept this notion of being reconciled to God. And our response to that element where He unshackles us from sin and its wage is we live the new life that He calls us to live. In Romans 6, verse 19 to 22, he said, I speak after the matter of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, whereas ye have yielded your members to service to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. While you were back living that life of sin, while you were lost and outside of Christ, 
you were free from any vestige of righteousness inside of God. That's just how it was. But you see, Christ has rescued you from that. He's unshackled you from that. So what does Paul say in Romans chapter 6 that that compels us to do? Because He's rescued us from those shackles and that we don't have to be a servant of sin. That means that we should choose to yield ourselves as servants to righteousness. Christ's rescue compels us not only to initially repent of our sin and turn to Him, but continually reaffirm that choice in our daily choices. To constantly be turning from sin and turning to God. And rising above the iniquity that would so love to bind us and drag us back down and drag us back away from God. But because we appreciate Christ's rescue, we want to continue to walk in that rescued state and make the choice to yield to righteousness, to live that righteous life. The fact that Christ offers rescue from death, what does that mean? How do I respond to that? I respond by seeking heaven as my eternal goal. That's what I do. Think about the goals you have in life. Having physical goals or goals that are physical in nature, that can be appropriate. That goes back to some things we studied from Ecclesiastes about uh, the things that Solomon abused in his life experiment. There's a proper place for these things. The entertainment, the prosperity, the work, the projects, all that. It all has its proper place. We've talked about that a lot this week. So it's, it's clearly appropriate for you to have goals in life that may be physical in nature. What should the overriding goal and aim of your life be? The prevailing goal, the one that stands out above all the rest. You've got physical goals. The people that know you, they probably see you working towards those physical goals. But do they see in you, in your daily life, a greater goal than spiritual in nature? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he said, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, and not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear... Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. He holds out there before us the hope of the resurrection. And because we are spiritually risen with Christ today, to walk that new life of not being a slave to sin, but being a servant of righteousness, we should live our lives in view of the physical resurrection we can have with Christ someday. Because just like He's raised us spiritually out of the guiltiness of our sin, He'll raise our dead body out of the contraction of the grave. And with that thought in mind, Paul reminds the Colossians, therefore you need to seek things that are above. You need to have heavenly goals. You need to set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. The prevailing, overriding goal and meaning and purpose and aim of your life needs to be a home in heaven. And as you carry out your physical goals below, they need to be done with a godly purpose that says you're doing these things to honor God, not please sell. Does your life show that kind of aim? Does it show that kind of goal? 
you think about the rescue that Christ has so generously supplied in our fallen state, our condition, His rescue, and our response, our condition, we're separated from God, we're lost in sin, we're bound to death, and His rescue corresponds to that perfectly. He heals that separated state, He liberates us from the bondage of sin, and He opens that prison of death. And our response is, we've got to accept that that healing that He offers spiritually and be reconciled to God. We've got to live that new life to which He calls us. We've got to seek heaven as our primary goal. What does the fruit of your life show? Christ has offered a powerful and exquisitely beautiful rescue mission. He's come and He's filled every greatest need that we have. We worry so much sometimes about our physical needs. But think of the spiritual needs that Christ has tended to in His rescue mission. And think of the duty of loyalty that you owe Him because of what He's given you. Listen. Listen. We owe Him everything we can give Him. And so much more. Live your life for Him. If you're not living your life that way right now, we want to give you the opportunity to do so. If you're not a Christian, if you've not yet accepted His rescue, we want to help you take those steps that we've stated about tonight. And come to Christ and enjoy the blessing of His rescue. If you are a Christian, you're failing Him, you need the church to pray for you, to strengthen you and help you. We'd love to offer you those prayers at this time. If we can help you in either condition, please come. Have a seat on the front pew while we stand and sing.